An Exposition of the Sermon on the Mount by E.W. Pink False Prophets Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Matthew 7, verse 15 If there be any verse in Holy Writ where it is deeply important to observe and heed its connection, it is surely the one in which we have now arrived. It may appear to the causal reader that our Lord here began an entirely new subject having little or no relation to what immediately proceeds. It is true our present verse introduces a distinct section of his sermon, yet it also bears directly on what he had just said. Having described most solemnly and certainly the way of life, like a faithful guide, Christ went on to warn against one of the chief impediments to walking in that way, namely, false guides, those who under the pretense of offering us divine direction, therein will fatally deceive us, if we give heed to them. In every age, but never more so than in our own, multitudes of gullible souls have been allured into the broad road which leads to destruction, by men professing to be teachers of the truth, and ministers of Christ, yet who had not his spirit, and who were none of his, blind leaders of the blind who with their dupes fall into the ditch. Beware of false prophets. The force of this exhortation will be the better perceived if we take to heart what is found in the Old Testament thereon. Bearing in mind that history has ever repeated itself since human nature is the same in all ages. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means. Jeremiah five thirty and 31. And the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spake I unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, a thing of naught, and the deceit of their heart. Jeremiah 14, verse 14. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery. And walk in lies, they strengthen also the hands of evil doers, did none return from his wickedness, they are all of them to me as Sodom. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you, they make you vain, they speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah 23 verses 14 and 16. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows. Ezekiel 22 verse 25. Paul's prophets were one of the chief factors in the apostasy and destruction of Israel. And these passages are recorded for our admonition and warning. It must not be supposed that such deceivers passed away with the ending of the Mosaic economy. The Lord Jesus and his apostles announced that there should be false teachers in this Christian dispensation. Christ declared that many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Yea, they would present such imposing credentials that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Matthew 24, verse 11 and 24. Paul announced, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, 
Of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch. Acts 20 verses 29 to 31. And again he said, Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Romans 16 verses 17 and 18. Peter foretold, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious way. Second Peter 2 verses 1 and 2. John gave warning. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. First John 4 1. Immediately after the parable of the sower, Christ declared, His enemy came and sowed tears among the wheat. Matthew 13, verse 25. The one so closely resembling the other that he commanded, Let both grow together until the harvest, when it will be seen there is no corn in the ears of the deceitful tears. By placing those parables in juxtaposition, the Lord Jesus exposed the method and order of his adversary. His genus and Jambres, the magicians of Pharaoh, withstood Moses, 2 Timothy 3, verse 8, by their imitating its miracles. So when God sends forth his servants to preach a gospel, the devil soon after prompts his emissaries to proclaim another gospel. When God speaks, the devil gives a mocking echo. Satan has found that he can work far more effectively by counterfeiting the truth than by openly denying it. Hence in every age false prophets have abounded, and therefore we should be neither surprised nor stumbled by their number, or success in our own day. We fully agree with Andrew Fuller when he said, As this word, beware of false prophets, was designed for Christians of every age, the term rendered prophets must here, as it is often elsewhere, be used of ordinary teachers. Beware of false prophets, signifies in this dispensation. Be on your guard against false teachers, heretical preachers. There are no longer any prophets in a strict and technical sense of the term, though there are a few of God's servants who in their gifts and special work approximate closely thereto. Those again whom we are here warned are men who have a false commission, never having been called of God to the service they engage in. They preach error, which is subversive of the doctrine which is according to godliness. 1 Timothy 6 verse 3 And the fruit they bear is a base imitation of the fruit of the Spirit. The chief identifying mark of the false prophets has ever been their saying, Peace, peace, when there is none. Jeremiah 23 verse 17 Micah 3 verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 5 3, to heal the wounds of sinners lightly, Jeremiah 8 verse 11, and daub with untempered mortar, Ezekiel 8 verses 14, 22, 28. They prophesy smooth things, Isaiah 30 verse 10, inventing easy ways to heaven, 
pandering to corrupt nature. There is nothing in their preaching which searches the conscience and renders the empty professor uneasy. Nothing which humbles and causes their hearers to mourn before God, but rather that which puffs up, makes them pleased with themselves and to rest content in a false assurance. The general characteristic of false prophets is that they make vital godliness to be a less strict and easier thing than it actually is, more agreeable to fallen human nature, and thus they encourage the unregenerate to be satisfied with something which comes short of true grace. So the Pharisees did, notwithstanding all their strictness, Matthew 23, verse 25, so the papists do. Notwithstanding all their boasted austerity, so Arminians do, notwithstanding all their seeming zeal for good works, so the antinomians do, notwithstanding their pretended superior light and joy, zeal, and confidence, just as a common mark of all false teachers, rejecting the divine way, they manufacture one to soothe themselves. And however they may differ among themselves, they all agree to make the practice of piety in the Christian walk an easier thing than the scriptures do, to offer salvation on cheaper terms, to make the gate wider in the way to heaven broader than did Christ and his apostles. It is this which explains the secret of their popularity, dare of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. First John 4 verse 5 but as such Christ warns his people to beware, for they feed souls with poison, and not with the pure milk of the word, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. In those words Christ emphasized the danger of these false prophets, the character they assumed as well calculated to deceive the unwary. The Lord here alluded to a device employed by false prophets in former times who counterfeited the true servants of God by wearing their distinctive attire. Elijah, in regard to his garments, was called a hairy man. 2 Kings 1 verse 8 And therefore, when John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elias, Luke 1 verse 17, we are told that he had his raiment of camel's hair. Matthew 3 verse 4 when then the agents of Satan posed as the true prophets, they counterfeited their attire that they might more easily seduce the people. This is clear from Zechariah 13, verse 4, where Jehovah declared that a day would come when the prophet should be ashamed of the vision he had prophesied and should no more wear a garment of hair to deceive. Thus, by this evident reference, Christ animated the plausible pretenses of the heretical teachers the subterfuges, which they would employ to conceal their real character and design, thereby stressing what dangerous persons they are, and urgent to the need for his people to be constantly on their guard against those who seek their destruction, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They pose as being the very opposite of what they really are. Dear agents of the evil one, yet claim to be the servants of the Holy One. Their place is on the outside, in the forests and mountains, yet they intrude themselves within the fold. This intimates a great craftiness and seeming piety. People think they are teaching them the way to heaven, when in fact they are conducting them to hell. Often they are difficult to discover, 
for to creep into houses and lead captive silly women. Second Timothy 3, verse 6. Yet even in apostolic times, some of them successfully creeped in unawares. Jude 4. Into the assemblies of the saints. It was of such Paul wrote when he said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And all marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 11.13-15 Though their clothing be sheeps, yet they have the fierceness and cruelty of wolves. In addition to their subtlety and plausibility, frequently accompanied by a most winsome personality, an apparently saintly walk. There is a real danger for being deceived by these false prophets and receiving their erroneous teaching by virtue of the fact that there is that within the Christian himself which responds to and approves of their lies. How immeasurably that intensifies our peril. That which flatters is pleasing to the flesh. That which abases is distasteful. Paul complains of this very thing to the Corinthians. Some had evidently resented his plain speaking in the first epistle, wherein he had rebuked their sins. For in a second he wrote, Would to God you could bear with me a little. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Galatians first received the gospel so gladly from him that they would have plucked out their eyes had they advantaged him. Chapter 4, verse 15. Yet soon after they imbibed deadly air from the Judaizers. And when the apostle took them to task for this, he had to ask them, Am I therefore become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? Verse 16. Thus it was with the multitudes in connection with our Savior, acclaiming him with their hosannas, and less than a week later crying, Away with him, crucify him. So fickle and treacherous is a human heart. What point does this give to our Lord's command? Take heed what you hear. Mark 4, verse 24. Corrupt nature thoroughly in love with error, and will more readily and eagerly receive false and true doctrine. Should any dispute about our statement, we'd refer them to the prophets prophesying falsely, and the priests bearing rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. Jeremiah 5, verse 31. Christ said to the Jews, because I tell you the truth. You do not believe me. John 8 verse 45. What a commentary on fallen human nature. Had he preached lies, he had promptly received him. Alas, what is man? He will run greedily after something new and sensational, but is soon bored by the old story of the gospel. How feeble is a Christian? How weak his faith? How fickle and unstable the moment he is left to himself. Peter, the most courageous and forward of the apostles in his profession, denied his master when challenged by a maid. Even when given a heart to love the truth, we still have itching ears for novelties and errors. His Israelites welcomed the man at first, but soon grew weary of it, and lusted after the flashpots of Egypt. Real and urgent, then, is our need to heed this command. Beware of false prophets. It is time that we should now proceed to amplify the thought expressed in our opening paragraph. In a previous section of his sermon, 
Christ had contrasted the broad road, and the many who tread it, and the narrow way, and the few who find it, adding immediately, Beware of false prophets. Now the narrow way which leads to life is a way of salvation, and therefore the warning given us must have respect to those who teach or present an erroneous way of salvation, thereby placing the souls of their listeners in imminent peril, for to accept their false teaching is fatal. Thus the tremendous importance of our present passage is at once apparent. As the verse quoted from Second Peter tells us, it is nothing short of damnable heresies which these false prophets promulgate. It is about salvation manners they trade, but damnation is the end of those who receive their lies, unless God intervenes with a miracle of grace and disillusions their dupes, which very rarely happens. Therefore behooves each of us seriously to ask, Have I been deceived by these false prophets? Am I treading a way which seems right to me, but which God declares as a way of death? Proverbs 14, verse 12. Yea, it behooves us sincerely amid earnestly to beseech God, to make it unmistakably clear to us which way we are really treading. Now, it is the duty of God's servants to provide help to exercise souls in a supremely important matter, to expose the lies of these false prophets, to make plain the way of salvation, this may best be done by defining and showing the relation of good works unto salvation. For it is at this point more than any other that the emissaries of Satan have fatally deceived souls. The principal errors which have been advanced thereon may be summed up under these two heads, salvation by works and salvation without works. Romanists have been the chief promulgators of the former, insisting that the good works of the Christian have a meritorious value which entitles him to heaven. By this they rob Christ of much of his glory, bringing in something of ours in addition to his blood and righteousness to obtain acceptance with God. Romanists do not repudiate in total either the grace of God or the redemption of Christ, but they nullify both by attributing saving efficacy to the rights of their church in the performances of the creature. Such an error is expressly repudiated by such scriptures. It's Romans 11, verse 6, Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, and Titus 3, verse 5. Some of the propagators of the salvation without works error during the last century have assumed the garb of the Orthodox and thereby obtained a hearing from many who had never listened to them, had the real characters been suspected. They have gone to the opposite extreme and preached a gospel, as far removed from the truth as a Romish lie of salvation by works. They teach that while good works from Christians are certainly desirable, yet they are not imperative, the absence of them involving merely the loss of certain millennial honors, not the missing of heaven itself. They have interpreted those words of Christ's, it is finished, in such a way as to lull multitudes of souls into a false peace. And so he wrought something at the cross which renders it needless for sinners to repent, forsake their idols, renounce a world before they can be saved, that nothing is required from them but their simple acceptance of Christ by faith, that once they have rested on his finished work, no matter what their subsequent lives, Dear eternally secure. So widely has his fatal doctrine been received, 
So thoroughly have these ravenous wolves deceived the religious world by their sheep's clothing, that with rare exceptions, anyone who now denounces this deadly evil is to call down upon himself the charge of being a legalist or a Judaizer. For we endeavor to show the place what good works have in connection with salvation. Let us quote a few sentences from a brief article we wrote in this magazine some years ago. It is finished. To those blessed works signified that Christ so satisfied the requirements of God's holiness, that that holiness no longer has any real and pressing claims upon us. Did Christ magnify the law and make it honorable? Isaiah 42, verse 21. That we might be lawless. Did he fulfill all righteousness to purchase for us an immunity from loving God with all of our hearts and serving him with all of our faculties? Did Christ die in order to secure a divine indulgence so we might live to please self? Christ died not to make my sorrow for and hatred of sin useless. He did not die to absolve me from the full discharge of my responsibilities unto God. Christ died not so that I might go on retaining the friendship and fellowship of the world. The finished work of Christ avails me nothing if my heart has not been broken by an agonizing consciousness of my sinfulness. It avails me nothing if I still love the world. First John 2 verse 15 It avails me nothing unless I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians 5 verse 17 since in salvation by works, salvation without works are equally opposed to God's way of salvation, what is a place or relation which good works hold to the saving of a soul? Let us first define our terms. By good works we mean those operations of our hearts and hands which are performed in obedience to God's will, which proceed from evangelical principles and which have in view the divine glory. By salvation we include not only regeneration, which is simply the beginning of it in our experience, but sanctification, an actual entrance into heaven itself. Does godly sorrow works repentance to salvation? Second Corinthians 7 verse 10 Unreserved surrender to the Lordship of Christ, the obedience of faith, enduring to the end and sound doctrine love to God, in the way of holiness, are all good works, and are indispensably necessary if we are to escape the everlasting burnings. The good shepherd goes before his sheep, John 10:4. If they are to join him on high, they must follow him, leaving us an example that you should follow with staffs, 1 Peter 2, verse 21. There is no reaching heaven, except by treading the only path that leads there, the highway of holiness. The subject we are now dealing with is far too important to be condensed into a few brief and general statements. Therefore, as our present space is almost exhausted, we shall conclude with this paragraph and enter into more detail in our next chapter. The good works are neither the chief nor the procuring cause of salvation is readily admitted. But, that there are no cause whatever, that there are simply fruits of salvation and not a means to it, we as definitely deny. 
On the one hand, good works must be kept strictly subordinate to the grace of God and the merits of Christ. On the other hand, they must not be entirely excluded. It is the corn he sows which produces a crop. Equally true that the fertility of the ground and the showers and sunshine from heaven are indispensable for a harvest. But given the finest seed, the richest soil, the most favorable season, would the farmer have anything to reap if he failed to plow his ground and sow his seed? But does that furnish room for the farmer to boast? Certainly not. Who provided him with the seed and ground? who furnish him with health and strength, who granted the increase in his labors. Nevertheless, had he remained inactive, there would be no crop.